When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the f*** away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Oh, what's your name? The post-Obama right-wing panic over race and culture. Nowhere is that in sharper focus than in Florida, where Ron DeSantis has had more success pushing authoritarianism than Donald Trump ever dreamed possible. Plus, breaking news in the Dominion voting systems lawsuit against Fox News, including our first look at some of the sworn testimony from Rupert Murdoch on why he allowed his network to spread election lies. Also tonight, Senator Elizabeth Warren is here on how we are still living with the consequences of Trump's judicial choices, from an imminent decision on reproductive rights to student loan debt relief and beyond. And the water crisis in Mississippi has echoes of 1890 post-Reconstruction, with Jackson's overwhelmingly black population being told by white state lawmakers, we know what's best for you. But we begin tonight with the supersized panic of the American right. Post-Obama backlash may have escalated the panic more than 10 years ago. But then Donald Trump poured the freak out with gasoline. It was Trump who unveiled the racism and misogyny that was always there, but threw it wide open, normalized the depths of the country's prejudice, even made it fashionable for conservatives. Their vision of America crystallized online, within our government too, the post-Trump age of open fascism. We saw open demonstrations of hate from white nationalists using tiki torches to light up Charlottesville, to the attempted Confederate takeover of the Capitol. Once the Pandora's box of bigotry is open, things get out of control quickly and in a horrifying way. People don't even feel bad about their anti-blackness these days. They are grossly, actually kind of proud of it. Case in point, Dilbert, the widely syndicated comic strip about office culture that appeared in 2,000 newspapers around the world. You may be familiar with the comic, but maybe not its creator, Scott Adams. Frankly, I had no idea who the guy was. <laughs> well until he went on a racist rant on YouTube last Wednesday. I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. So I'm, I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to back off from being helpful to black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. If you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. Oh, how will black folk ever survive without you, whoever you are? Okay, there is a lot to unpack there. The unabashed anti-blackness and racism, but also this country's long history of dubbing black people as the hateful, violent ones, while also exposing this weird offensive belief that white people need to get something out of helping others. And again, what has this guy ever done for anyone that's black? Anyway. 
Hundreds of newspapers, including the Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and USA Today, announced that they would stop publishing Dilbert after Adam's tirade. Also, that part the Dilbert guy mentioned about a poll, he was talking about a poll by Rasmussen Reports, the right-wing polling outfit, that found 53% of black Americans agreed with the statement, it's okay to be white. I mean, why would a poll even ask that? Oh, because it's Rasmussen, of course, the agenda-driven conspiracy theory-boosting pollster who loves to stir the pot in the culture war. The phrase, it's okay to be white, by the way, has been labeled a hate slogan by the Anti-Defamation League, a slogan popularized as a trolling campaign by members of 4chan. The poll also found that 66% of black Americans agree black people can be racist too. A poll, mind you, that they surveyed about a thousand people, exactly a thousand people actually, meaning, uh, sorry, how many black people said this? Well, if they go by population, that would be 12. They, they surveyed 12 black people. In a move that surprised no one, Twitter destroyed Elon Musk when he defended the Dilbert creator, saying that it's actually the media that's racist against whites and Asians. But a story about a cartoon creator becoming the voice of the great white male freakout doesn't end at Dilbert or even at Elon Musk. It ends, or rather begins, with white grievance politics potentially becoming U.S. federal policy. If Florida Governor Ron DeSantis becomes president of the United States, which he is clearly aiming for, America will become the land of total government control over women's bodies, black history, gender identity, how you can teach, learn, read, think, even talk. It would essentially be a more functionally authoritarian version of Trump a more action, less personality type of president who's basically offering two options, pre-civil rights America or total control of society. But of course, his robust PR team has you thinking quite the opposite, which is why his new book titled, and I'm not making this up, The Courage to be Free. <laughs> the Courage to be Free. As a firsthand account, from the blue collar boy with a dream to take down Disney and librarians, it got scorched by the New York Times, obviously. Its reviewers saying, quote, all the culture war mad libs can't distract from the dull coldness at this book's core. <laughs> and that it will leave some supporters who have encouraged DeSantis to humanize himself sorely disappointed. The world DeSantis is building, the reviewer said, down in Florida is one that uses the power of government to make the Dilbert guys of the world feel comfortable. They feel good about themselves, centered, you know. Did you know that this isn't even Baby Maga's first book? He also penned Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, published in 2011. And it pretty much sums up what we already know about the guy. David Waldstreicher wrote about the book in The Atlantic, saying the most revealing and consequential element of the book is the insistence that the role of slavery and race more broadly does not seriously change anything about how we should understand the birth and development of our country. Joining me now is the author of that article, David Waldstreicher, history professor at the university, at the City University of New York's Graduate Center, and Christina Greer, associate professor of political science at Fordham University. Thank you both for being here. And Mr. Waldstreicher, I want to first make sure I said your name correctly. Did I indeed? Yes, thank you. I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong camera. Let me make sure I'm in the right camera first. Okay, so let me start by asking you about this, about the first book that, that DeSantis wrote, because he's written this new book, which I think the title is hilarious. The first book was meant to be a response to dreams from my father, dreams of dreams from my father, which was Barack Obama's book. So he thought himself at the level where he ought to respond to Barack Obama. What did that book reveal about Ron DeSantis's worldview? Well, it, for one thing, it was a, it reveals that he was quite certain that he was 
a similar figure to Barack Obama <laughs> in the sense of rising from uh, uh, obscurity uh, and not being well known to wanting to run for Congress and being able to maybe do this by writing a book that uh, made an important statement about yeah. what the current, the current president got wrong and what what he got what he got right. And similarly to President Obama, DeSantis went to uh, an Ivy League school and then he went to Harvard Law School and he felt that he knew enough to uh, um, have something to say about the about the founding fathers and its relevance for our politics. And let so me, let me stop you right there, just, just a sense. Yeah, because it's what he said. And your, your piece is really fascinating because it's what he said about the founding fathers that I found fascinating in your review of it, that he seemed to simultaneously believe that the founding fathers prime directive was to protect the right of property. But he also believed that that had nothing to do with slavery and no one should ever think about slavery in that guise. But the bottom line is these these men wrote slavery into the Constitution and wrote a system that fundamentally protected their property rights in slaves and in plantations, which is where they derive their wealth. These two things seem to be a complete contradiction. Yes, they are. Uh, that's exactly it. And there's a uh, the extremity by which he says that the only thing we need to know about the founding fathers uh, and the American Revolution with respect to slavery is that they were they were really against it. They believed it was wrong, and their idealism then had later had fruits. So that even though it was impossible, he says to possibly end end slavery at the time of the founding, that nevertheless the only thing you need to know is that they really wanted to end, and eventually it got ended thanks to fealty to the ideals of the founders. And anything else we might want to say about the role of slavery in the 18th century or the 19th century is. Uh, just bashing the founding fathers to pursue a uh, what he would now call a woke agenda. He didn't yeah. use the term 10 years ago. So, so, Christina, I want to bring you in here because I, I think that this is, it explains a lot about DeSantis, about the way he taught high school and what his students said about him and his sort of sense of self-importance. Uh, but also this idea that the people who constructed the Constitution constructed a system designed to make themselves poor, designed to eventually rob them of the very thing that made them rich, and that they somehow had a secret plan that they didn't write in the Constitution, that they didn't write in their letters, that they kept out of all written text, but that somehow they had this secret plan. And the only people who really know it are modern-day Americans like Ron DeSantis, whose roots don't even go to them. Ron DeSantis' people came here in the early 1900s. In the 20th century, he was from a disfavored group. His family was almost kept out because they were Italian, who were considered lower whites, who were not wanted in this country. The Founding Fathers didn't even include him in their vision of America. And yet, he's like, don't besmirch the Founding Fathers. I mean... Alice, uh, I mean, this man has literally, Angela Davis has more ties to the pilgrims. I mean, she had like literal direct ties to the pilgrims. He has none. (laughs) And yet he's like, don't besmirch the founding fathers. Your thoughts. Right. Well, I mean, Joy, there there's so many things to unpack with Ron DeSantis, right? One, we know that he has ambitions that are much greater than Florida. This is why we must take very seriously all of his attacks, not just on education and curriculum and African-American studies, but his worldview of what he thinks of immigrants, right? His, his grandparents and great-grandparents came here uh, and didn't speak English. Uh, yet, and still we see how he treats, uh, you know, refugees and migrants who are coming to the state of Florida and shipping them all over the Northeast. 
and freezing conditions. So we, we, we've seen what he's capable of. But this rewriting of history, Joy, this, this reimagining of these, you know, these sort of good men who just had this like minor inconvenience that, you know, we're just, we're being histrionic and talking about U.S. chattel slavery. We cannot forget that George Washington plucked out the teeth of his enslaved Africans and put them in his mouth. We cannot forget that he did not, none of these guys, freed their enslaved Africans once they died, even when they said they would, they still did not. We cannot forget about the rape and the murder and the the trafficking of not just individuals, but full-on families and communities. So the fact that Ron DeSantis wants to erase all of that very concrete history that links Black and white America together from any educational system in the state of Florida, and as he sets his sights on a, a larger national picture in the United States, he wants to erase that entire narrative and make it just you know, these sort of hardworking white men, which he now sees himself uh, a part of, which you have so clearly laid out, he would not have been a part of that narrative. He would not have been a part of that group. But what's so dangerous and scary is that he wants to be a part of that group. He wants yeah. to be a part of, you know, these men who sort of created these systems, institutional systems that we still see the vestiges of today in so many of our policies and practices across the United States, especially well, I mean, in how they affect black communities. Well, we've talked about how Italians were eventually inducted into 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 the white space and into the white community. Eventually they were excluded, but they eventually were let in. One thing I do want to ask you, um, Christina, you're a student of history. How many, since, you know, secretly uh, Thomas Jefferson really hated slavery, how many slaves, do you know how many slaves he actually manumitted during his lifetime? How many did he free? I don't know. No. Uh, but I do, <laughs> right. None. If I had to guess, right, if I'm a betting woman. None. But you know, Joy, I would suggest our your your viewers, you know, really read the Thomas Jefferson Wolf by the Ears uh, letter that he wrote to a friend, because it's not about, oh, should we, you know, sort of abolish slavery because it's, um, you know, the right thing to do. He's he's making an economic question, right? It's, it's also, it's like, well, will they come back and bite us? But it's really, it's like, well, how will we continue to make money if we sort of let all these people go? So this but is that, an economic endeavor that has destroyed so many families across this country uh, for centuries. It, it, it's literal. I mean, they, literally, he would have been bankrupting himself had he ended slavery, which is why in his will, he said Martha, he, he said his wife, sorry, not Martha, that's Washington's wife, could manumit the ones that were under her that she had inherited. And they did that after she and he were both dead and they didn't even let them all go. Uh, let, let me go back uh, to you, Mr. Waldstreicher, because the worldview that DeSantis is putting forth, it does not include very, I think, the most open anti-blackness that we've seen since the old days of Southern governors. I mean, he literally is sort of an old-fashioned Southern governor style, but it's also this fixation on trans, um, and that's also weaving throughout the party. I is there something that ties in his anti-Blackness narrative to this kind of obsession with fixing Disney and, and taking the, the gay characters out of Disney and making it, you know, magical in the way that he thinks it should be magical and getting rid of drag shows? Is there anything that ties it together? There is. There's some notion in DeSantis that overlaps with Trump's idea that there was this older America where you didn't have to deal with any of these things and nobody was gay or queer and black people weren't in public space and people didn't talk about about things that are that they're now talking about and that that was better and that we can go back to this pristine time when supposedly the federal government didn't do anything that shaped the economy it didn't interfere with anything that states were doing so there's this idea that this um it's a kind of hyper originalism where yeah. if you follow the text of the founding and if you read the federalist papers you'll have all the answers and all the, and and what's ridiculous about it is that it, it 
pretends that that Hamilton and Madison, just starting with them and Jefferson, agreed with each other most of the time on what was important and laid this groundwork that was crystal clear about how we should run the government and how we should deal with problems that they uh, that they may not have even ever imagined. You know, luckily for Ron DeSantis, his family got here just in time to take advantage of the New Deal. Oh, sorry. That was the government literally trying to keep people from being poor. But, you know, Ron DeSantis, don't go by me. You know, that's just history, which is illegal in your state. Uh, David Wallstreicher, Christina Greer, thank you both very much. What a guy. Up next on The Readout, explosive new revelations from the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News show just how chummy Fox News executives were with the Trump campaign. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Just released tonight is a new filing in the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. The filing provides clear insight into what the man at the very top, Fox Corporation Chairman Rupert Murdoch, really thought about the BS being spread on his network about Donald Trump's baseless claims that the 2020 election was stolen and why those conspiracy theories continue to be spread by the network to this very day, even when they all know it's a lie. He claims that it's all about the business. When asked about giving a platform to election deniers like the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, Murdoch said, the man is on every night, pays us a lot of money. (laughs) Rupert confirmed that he could tell Fox News to stop running Lindell's advertisements, quote, but I'm not about to. Murdoch agreed that it is not red or blue, it is green. Murdoch even said he knew from the very beginning when Fox called Arizona for Biden that he didn't believe there was any fraud, but didn't want to further antagonize Trump. Because as Murdoch stated in his deposition, he had a very large following and they were probably mostly viewers of Fox. So it would have been stupid. In fact, they almost did the right thing to try to set the record straight on the eve of January 6th insurrection, but remained quiet and only focused on their bottom line. The filing states on January 5th, Rupert and Fox News chief executive Suzanne Scott discussed whether Hannity, Carlson and Ingraham should say some version of the election is over and Joe Biden won. He hoped these words would go a long way to stop the Trump myth that the election was stolen. Scott told Rupert that privately they are all there. But, quote, we need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers. So nobody made a statement. Joining me now is Jessica Levinson, professor at Loyola Law School and an MSNBC columnist, and Katie Fang, MSNBC legal contributor and host of The Katie Fang Show on MSNBC. Jessica, I do want to start with you. 
This, to me, makes it very clear that Rupert Murdoch never believed, and he admits that he never believed the election fraud theories, but he made it very clear that he was also about the bottom line, that he was willing to let a supposed news outlet lie to its viewers for money. Does that in any way absolve him of the idea that it was defamation? No. I mean, if you're asking, is there a business defense to defamation law? Is there a bottom line defense to defamation law? The answer is absolutely not. When I teach defamation and I talk about the First Amendment, nowhere in there do I say, but if you run a media corporation and it's good for business, then go ahead and peddle those lies. And in fact, I was thinking when all this information came out today, what would I say to my students? And the answer is, I wouldn't write an exam question like this. I wouldn't give them a hypothetical like this. I would make it a closer call. I wouldn't have the executives of Fox and the host texting and saying, we don't believe it, but we have to do it for business reasons. That is not a defense to defamation. In fact, it's really helping make Dominion's case here. And Katie, you and I both work for this network. We have a standards and practices department. We can't just get on TV, say something that we know absolutely to be false and put that on TV and say, you know, but it helps Comcast make money. So we're going to go ahead and say it. We literally would be fired for that <laughs> because literally you cannot do it. If standards says you can't legal and standards review. It's shocking to me that I guess they don't have a standards department, but maybe you don't need it. Let me read a little bit of, of, of Rupert Murdoch's uh, deposition. This is what he said. He said, this is the question. You are aware now that Fox did more than simply host these guests and give them a platform, correct? Rupert Murdoch. I think you've shown me some material in support of that question. In fact, you are now aware that Fox endorsed at times the false notion of a stolen election? Answer, not Fox. No, not Fox, but maybe Lou Dobbs, maybe Maria Bartiromo and commentators. Question, we went through Fox host Maria Bartiromo. Yes, yes, come on. Fox News Jeanine Pirro? I think so. Question, Fox News host Lou Dobbs? Oh, a lot. <laughs> Fox News host Sean Hannity? A bit. All were in that document, correct? Yes, they were. About Fox endorsing the narrative of a stolen election, correct? No, some of our commentators were endorsing it. About their endorsement of a stolen election? Yes, they endorsed. I mean, he's literally saying, well, maybe the people on our air were saying it, but not Fox News. That don't sound like a defense either. <laughs> It's definitely not. And, you know, what's amazing about this is it's bad enough as a TV host if you put somebody on and give them the platform. That's actionable, meaning you can sue somebody for that and recover for that. But the endorsement is the key part of that deposition testimony. There's also evidence that's come out of this case, Joy, that Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch, they had their hands meddling in the day-to-day -day operations. They weren't some benevolent dictators that were somewhere else that didn't know what was going on. And so the defamation and the responsibility goes from top all the way down to the bottom. And that's a really critical point because no matter what Rupert Murdoch wants to do, he can't punt liability. He can't punt exposure just to his host and say that they went rogue and they did what they wanted to do and they endorsed it. No, because they took it, gave them a platform and endorsed it. That's a problem. And I think that's exactly where we find ourselves, to Jessica's point as well. She'd never do a fact pattern like this because it's so glaringly obvious what the liability is going to be on the part of Fox News. And where it really kicks in the most joy is the damages in this case. So Dominion voting, we always talk about the $1.6 billion. But if you read further along towards the end of this 212-page filing, they're seeking punitive damages. Mm. And in the state of New York, there is no cap to punitive damages for this. So it's not just the 1.6 billion, it's $1.6 billion plus. And another critical part of a problem for Fox News at this stage is the fact that summary judgment 
meaning if the judge says that there's no genuine issue of material fact that a jury needs to decide, that judge could find liability in favor of Dominion and still have a trial on damages if there's a question mark. But wow. Dominion saying, what's the, where's the question? We've been reputationally yeah. harmed and greatly so. And, you know, and by the way, this is when Rupert Murdoch has asked what the consequences should be. So what should the consequences be when Fox News executives knowingly allow lies to be broadcast? He says, well, they should be reprimanded. They should be reprimanded. Maybe got rid of. Really? Maybe? Because you're in charge. <laughs> um, let, let's play what um, their com- they have a media columnist there. Maybe not a standards and practice department. But they do have a media columnist. His name is Howard Kurtz. Here's what he said about what he's allowed to say about this. Some of you have been asking why I'm not covering the Dominion voting machines lawsuit against Fox involving the unproven claims of election fraud in 2020. And it's absolutely a fair question. I believe I should be covering it. It's a major media story, given my role here at Fox. But the company has decided that as part of the organization being sued, I can't talk about it or write about it, at least for now. I strongly disagree with that decision. But as an employee, I have to abide by it. That seems incriminating to me, Professor Levinson. They're saying don't talk about this on the air. He's their media columnist. Well, I think it's incriminating in the sense that it indicates that Fox doesn't want somebody who might shed light on this, meaning shed more truth on what actually happened here to discuss it. Having said that, the case is specifically dealing with things that already happened, not things that happen later in time. So I don't think it would affect the case itself or the damages or as Katie pointed out, which is she's exactly right. There could be potentially punitive damages here. The $1.6 billion, obviously, it could change the way Fox does business but it won't put them in bankruptcy. If there really are punitive damages, then we're potentially talking about can they survive as a business model? Yeah. And, and by the way, look, it, it is not as if, Katie, you know, 20 years ago when the Florida election happened, there was lots of talk about people being very concerned about the machines. Did they punch their card yeah. and it then gave them Bush when they meant Gore? This came up when I was working at, at, at a local NBC affiliate. There is no way that NBC would have allowed us to go on the air and say, yeah, that might be true, y'all. That that machine might, might really have like stole y'all. You couldn't do it because you're not. OK, let, let me go on to another issue. This same network is now getting exclusive asset access through one of the people who knowingly lied to his audience, Tucker Carlson. He's the only one that now gets access to all of this footage, 41,000 hours of, of January 6th footage that shows security information. This guy is Russia's favorite host. It's dangerous. Now you have many other networks, including this network, Associated Press and others are saying we want it to give it to us. Um, is there any way that Speaker McCarthy could keep it from the rest of the networks if he's giving it to Tucker? I mean, McCarthy already kind of sidestepped all of the security protocols that went into what even the 1-6 committee did in order to make sure that there was a protective kind of cone of, of protection, frankly, around the disclosure of this security footage. From what we understand from what Politico has reported, Tucker Carlson's team has gone to the Capitol in order to be able to review it. I don't think it's been provided to Tucker Carlson on a thumb drive or in a cloud and say, here you go, check it out. But it should be good for the goose, good for the gander. It's clearly not happening here. And we should be able to see it because we all know that Tucker Carlson is going to selectively edit it when he releases it. Right. He's going to selectively edit it. And then whatever he does is going to fit very ironically and weirdly enough, whatever narrative Russia has on the whole thing. <laughs> it's just going to somehow True. fit it. It's going to be wild. Uh, Jessica Levinson, Katie Fang, thank you both very much. Still ahead. Trump-appointed judges are scrambling to turn back the clock on women's rights, civil rights, and voting rights in America. Senator Elizabeth Warren joins me next to talk about fighting back. Let's see if she also wears red. That seems to be the color of the day. <laughs>
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Elections have consequences. We say that a lot on this show. And this week, we are seeing in real time the consequences of Donald Trump spending four years in office stacking the courts with conservative lackeys. In Texas, any moment now, we will hear a decision in what could be the most consequential ruling on abortion rights since the reversal of Roe v. Wade. One single Trump-appointed judge will decide whether to ban a pill that accounts for more than half of all abortions nationwide. And tomorrow, Samuel Alito's Supreme Court, you know, the one that overturned Roe in the first place, will hear arguments on President Biden's student loan cancellation plan and ultimately decide the fate of 26 million borrowers. For many of them, ten dollars to $20,000 of loan forgiveness could be life-changing. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. I have so much to talk to you about, but I, I do want to go back and start with the abortion sure. ruling. This actually scares me a lot mm-hmm. because with this one judge's ruling, you know, women, more than half of women who need um, this care would lose access to it. Right. Are you hopeful? Or are you worried? So I'm very worried and I'm not worried because of the law. I'm worried about one extremist judge. So let's set the table here on what happens. As you know, a little over half of all abortions now are medication abortions. It's a drug called mifepristone. It's been approved for over a decade. It's been out there. It's been used. It's safe. Very, very safe. And now we've got one judge who says down in Texas, you know, I looked at this and I don't think so. And he thinks somehow he can override the FDA on its scientific judgment about mifepristone. And so what we're all worried about is that he's going to take it off the market. Now, keep in mind, remember how a lot of us said back when Dobbs came down? Yeah. That they're going after abortion nationwide. Nationwide. So this is about taking mifepristone, access to medication abortion, off the market everywhere. Right. Not not just in states. Blue that, states, too. That are, it's blue states as well. It's everywhere. And we don't. And the thing that worries me most is that we have a United States Senate that's sane, but we have a House that is non-functional. And so even if Congress could respond on the Senate side to try to restore the access to the drug, the House is the House. Right. So what will happen? Well, you have to remember, though, the president is not without tools. So there are things that the president would be able to do here. There are things that the FDA would be able to do. It's so interesting. You know, this is a moment when you really are looking to see what's everything that's available, things that were designed not for a situation like this, but can you pick them up and use them? So, for example, the FDA has the ability to keep a drug on the market, even if it is not a drug that has been approved, that is letting this Texas judge have his way on this, if there is a drug application pending. 
Okay. Um, or if we had a public health emergency, okay. that might be a path for uh, creating access to mifepristone. But the real point here is to use every tool possible to keep access to abortion available yeah. to people all across this country. And yeah. that's what we're going to do. Let's go on to student loans, because this okay. is an issue that I think hits so many people part close to home. I mean, ten dollars to $20,000 to somebody like you know, Rick Scott is nothing. It's pocket change yep. in his pocket. But for a lot of people, it's the difference between being able oh, no. to afford a home or not, or being able to start a business or not, or just being able to breathe or not. Mm-hmm. How is it possible that we could have the same crowd that said, we're not allowed to own our bodies say, you know what? Those members of Congress that got those loans and got them uh-huh. forgiven, they can have that, but you can't have that. That's right. Those big businesses that big got loans. Business, and the airlines. Remember when the, the banks, banks got all that money? Well, remember it was locked. That was okay. Yeah. That was okay. But not individuals. And notice on this one in particular, it was okay when Donald Trump said he was going to cancel in the middle of the pandemic all of the interest for everybody. Rich people, poor people, everybody in between. If you had student loan debt, Donald Trump didn't say, we're going to put off your interest payments or we're going to put them off for people who can't pay. He said, everybody across the board, I'm done. How many Republicans raised a hand and said, I have a problem with that? I'm guessing none. Uh, That's right. It's a nice round number. It's zero, none. Courts did not get involved. So now what we've got is we've got this program that would be so much help to so many people. 90% of the help will go to people who earn less than $75,000 a year. Yeah. Remember, 40% of these folks do not have a college diploma. Yep. These are folks, this is an opportunity to help close the racial wealth gap in America. Yeah. Half of all Latinos will see all their debt wiped out with yeah. this. A third of all African Americans could see all their debt wiped out. So it's something huge. that would be so helpful to people. Yeah. And now what we've got is a Supreme Court, at least threatening, to step in and say, you know, I know that's what the statute says. Yeah. But they want to substitute their judgment for the judgment of elected officials in Congress and an elected it, president of the them. United States. It's a trend, States. Alito and company. It is. Let, pulling let, the power to themselves to advance an extremist agenda that they could never get through. Never get through with elected officials. Let's talk about the Consumer Financial Protection yes. Bureau. One of the most powerful parts of President Biden's State of the Union is when he talked about how much people are overcharged. Yes. Everyone feels this. Junk whether it's fees, airlines, right? junk yep. fees, all of it. What is the threat to the Supreme Court uh, uh, against the CFPB? So this one's crazy. Remember the Supreme, uh, the CFPB, it has saved uh, ordinary consumers about $13 billion yeah. so far, and who knows how much that they didn't get cheated. This is money that was returned directly to consumers. So what's happened is one of the—you'll love this—the payday lenders, because those are the people we got to watch out for. The payday lenders, CFPB's put out a new rule saying, you know, you got to kind of do a little better on disclosure on what you do with people. Payday lenders have said, you know, I don't like the way CFPB is financed. They don't go to Congress to get financed. They do this through fees. Yeah. And here's the thing. They do it through fees exactly the same way the Federal Reserve Bank does. Yeah. Oh, exactly the same way that the Office of the Controller of the Currency does. Yeah. Oh, the same way that the FDIC does. Oh, the same way that that the uh, overseer of the, uh, of the credit unions yeah. does. So in other words, all of our banking regulators have all been financed outside the appropriations process. And that's been true since 1863 when the first banking regulator was put in place. 
And the reason for that is deliberately to try to insulate them from political influence. Wow. That's a decision Congress made and has reaffirmed and made over and over and over since 1863. And now we've got a Supreme Court that wants to put itself in the position of saying that it is more important to protect payday lenders than it is to keep an agency up in the way that Congress set it up so that it can protect tens of millions of consumers all across the country. You know, if, uh, we talk so much about the Supreme Court's religious fanaticism. We do not talk enough about how much they use their power to favor the super yes. rich and to favor big business. I want you to come back because we need to literally dig more into that because Let's they are it. protecting the super rich at the expense of regular folks. Yep. Senator Elizabeth Warren is always fighting. Always good to Thank see you. you. I really appreciate you. Uh, coming up next, Mississippi becomes the epicenter of efforts to revive the Jim Crow era. Great. With legislative assaults on the rights of black residents. Perfect. Happy Black History Month. More next. <laughs> Happy Black History Month, everyone. It is still legal, even in Florida. Now, we all know the saying, if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it, which lawmakers in Mississippi are apparently intent on doing. You may not know this, but in 1890, Mississippi adopted a new constitution. Delegates were very clear about their intentions at the Constitutional Convention that summer. Convention president, a white, the convention president, a white judge named Solomon Calhoun, said, we came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. Oh, and they did, with devastating consequences that stretched far into the 20th century. Enraged at the formerly enslaved voting, Mississippi delegates instituted a poll tax, $2, and in $2, which was an astronomical fee at the time, and literacy tests designed to exclude black voters that remained in place until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Constitution adopted in 1890 by 133 white men put a nail in the coffin of Reconstruction in Mississippi and created the precedent for Jim Crow for the entire South. And it is that history which informs why black citizens of Mississippi's capital, Jackson, are rightly furious about what white state lawmakers are trying to do now. After a supermajority in the heavily gerrymandered state house voted to create an entirely separate court system and expanded police force within the city of Jackson, the blackest city in America, appointed completely by white state officials, meaning Jackson voters will not get to elect judges or prosecutors. And joining me now is the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwe Antar Lumumba, and retired Army Lieutenant General Russell Honore, former commander of Joint Task Force Katrina. And Mr. Mayor, I know that you've been on with us before. What is the status of the vote on basically stealing um, the Jackson's, you know, autonomy? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Joy, for having me again. Uh, and to speak to this issue, the uh, the effort is still ongoing. Uh, they're very much uh, still uh, pursuing this this uh, effort to to steal uh, the right to vote, uh, the democratic principles that that we have grown to understand as being valuable. Uh, they have made some amendments to uh, the bill, uh, amendments that that you know acknowledge that it is fraught with constitutional violations. Uh, but nonetheless, it is still an attack on black leadership. Uh, not on not only on myself as the mayor of Jackson, uh, but also on black judges, uh, black prosecutors. Uh, and, you know, when asked to defend the reason why they believe that these positions should be appointed rather than elected, 
uh, it was uh, the representative who introduced the bill who said, well, we want to be certain that we get the best of the best, uh, as to suggest that uh, Black people are not intelligent enough, uh, aware enough of our needs in order to select the leadership that is accountable uh, to our communities. We've seen uh, this before. This is re reminiscent of Jim Crow. This is Jim Crow 2.0. Uh, also, we've seen a judicial system uh, which is not accountable to our people. And, and so uh, we believe that we have to fight this at all costs. You know, General Honore, this reminds me of Flint, um, when the gov Republican governor of Michigan decided that Flint, which is also a majority black city, 56.7 percent black, uh, was incapable of, dis of running its own water system and that they could do it cheaper if he just took control. And they ended up poisoning them for 18 months by putting Flint River water, which had cars sunk in the bottom of it and having that be their water. It poisoned them. You now have in Jackson also the water system that apparently the uh, all white uh, leadership there in, this, in the legislature says also must be controlled by them. This is a trend. It does seem to be a trend. Absolutely. I mean, this is what authoritarianism look like. Operating inside in the daylight as a democracy. Taking control and the sovereignty of the city of Jackson, which should be under control of the senior elected official. That's the way I was taught this in civics class, which is the mayor and the city council and the people who put them in office. When I first heard this, it made me reflect on a song I heard when I was in high school by Nina Simone. Mississippi GD. I won't say the word out, but to our listeners, go back and listen to that song. Mm -hmm. How could we stoop so low in the 21st century to come in and take the sovereignty of a city, take over the water system? Now that the mayor and the delegation have gotten $800 million, they want to take it over now. They also want to put in some stipulation about if you don't have a water meter, you don't have to pay your bill. And there will be no estimating of, of water bills. All that will degrade the amount of money that's coming to Jackson to have a sustainable water system, Joy. The federal government has invested. The Congress has invested. The EPA and the DOJ is there to help get the water system in line. But all of a sudden, Jim Crow 2.0 want to take it over now. And they will determine who get the contracts. The city won't have any say. And they went one step further. They wanted to charge the city of Jackson if there's any leaks in the in the wastewater system where cities downstream could charge Jackson up to $400 million a year. That would break the city. This is what happened when people have absolute control and they don't respect the citizens of Jackson and they don't represent all politics is local. Yeah. This is taxation without representation. It is. And you know what? I'm glad that I have both of you gentlemen on here tonight, uh, Mr. Mayor, because, you know, Louisiana and Mississippi, and we knew you, uh, General Honore, from Louisiana, uh, were the two two of the richest states in the union, if not the two richest states in the union before the Civil War, because they had free labor for 200 years that made people extremely rich. Uh, people like Marjorie Greene want to have a, a, a separation of the country. Well, the, the, the red part of America, the South, became the poorest region of the country after separation because they were deprived of that free labor. So that's how that went the first time. But it strikes me, uh, Mayor Lumumba, that what they want is apartheid because they don't 
believe that black people should govern themselves or be a majority and be in charge of a city like Jackson, which is the capital. I can't describe it as anything but apartheid, but how do you describe it? Well, that's the the uh, the phrase that I have used. Uh, I, I think that it accurately portrays what is taking place. Uh, I've also used uh, the phrase that it is, it is plantation politics at its finest. Uh, and I thank General Andre, who one is being very humble in terms of the effort uh, to get the resources as it pertains to our water. Uh, but what we're seeing is is not only that this is part and parcel of a larger effort uh, yep. through through many uh, through many legislative uh, bills that that have been introduced in Mississippi, uh, but we're seeing similar things in in places like Missouri. Uh, yes. Speaking with with my uh, sister mayor, uh, yep. uh, Tara Jones, uh, we're seeing this. We're seeing this there and, and in other places, and we need to and be in, vigilant. And in any place that is majority black or ruled by black folk, it's a trend, y'all. Don't think that it's coincidental. Jackson Mayor Mississippi Jackson Mississippi Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba and retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore. Thank you both. That is tonight's readout. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.